Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Welcome to In the Bookshop, a podcast usually recorded in George Street Community Bookshop in Glossop. Glossop, of course, is the gateway to the beautiful Peak District. I say usually recorded in the shop because we are, of course, staying extremely alert and we're recording via the wonder of the World Wide Web. My name is Steve Roberts, and I'm the manager of George Street Community Bookshop. Each episode, myself and producer Simon Galloway are joined by a guest who talks to us about five or six books they love and why they love them. Our guest for this episode is an actor and television presenter since first appearing on our screens way back in 1982 as a handsome young scally in the Liverpool soap opera Brookside, he has presented travel shows, property shows, sports shows. He's been kicked off his own radio show after being caught describing the government in rather honest detail. He's the Liverpool Cycle Commissioner and is currently recording a new series of find it, fix it, flog it. He's a busy man. And the only flaw in his character is that he supports Everton Football Club. Hello and welcome, Simon O'Brien. Well, you say that as a flaw, mm. Steve, but I, I, I say that as my uh, my finest attribute. Well, it, it doesn't say much, does it? Then? Because, because, because I think humility is, is one of the, the finest things one can have. And if, if you're an Everton supporter, you are absolutely made of humility. I, I'd argue that it's forced upon you, but, but never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how have you been during lockdown? Have you coped? Yeah, do you know what? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a terrible time. But, but for me, uh, lockdown has been a time, I think, like for, for many people to mm. kind of rethink uh, and take time to just have a look around you, yeah, particularly at, your, at your, where, you, where you live locally. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, spend time, which we will never, we, we will be the generation. I've got a young daughter who's 12 years old. Yeah. And we will be a, a generation who had special time with their children and, their, and my wife and, and family that, you know, ordinarily would never be afforded. Yeah, we got and I think, Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I think when you look back, you know, when we all, we all look back, you know, you, you know, see it as a, this pandemic has, has been has destroyed so many lives. Uh, and yet it's just underneath that, the layer underneath that, is it's also allowed us as a nation, and I think, and I think worldwide, to kind of rethink it, how we would like our world to be. And... I'm just, I just, I've just loved, uh, and I'm also very good at badminton now. <laughs> I, were you not better? I thought you, I thought you were always good at that. <laughs> yeah, I taught my daughter. She's now better than me. Well, there you go, mate. That's, mm. But I, I agree. Pod, um, lockdown, we've had all our family meals have been. Let's have a game afterwards, and let's talk about things. We don't have to rush for tomorrow. Yeah. All that, yes. But as you say, hopefully the world will reconsider where it is anyway so before we get to the books that you've chosen i'd like you to tell us about a rather special book of your own one uh you have been involved in building in a school in liverpool so so what is it and how did it come about okay yeah um, so my daughter went to our local primary school here walton primary school in liverpool at the time it was the biggest 
primary school in the city. I think one, one another one has now superseded it by a, a couple of kids. So it was a, a big old machine. Yeah. But what I had was uh, a, a head a headmaster, uh, Jane Gender, and a head of the parent governors, a guy called Jason Kirby, who were really, really keen to make sure that they were just going to be the sausage factory that dealt with these huge numbers of kids. I mean, the intake is like, you know, most primary schools have an intake of like 30 kids. This was like 100 a year. So right. like 900 kids in the school. It's a big wow. old place. Mm. Uh, they didn't have a dedicated library. Some teachers had converted their kind of stock rooms into little mini libraries. They had little pockets along corridors where they had books where you could go and sit and read and that kind of stuff. But, right. but they, were, they were determined, that, that, that despite the challenges they had on their site, that they really, really wanted to have a, a proper library. So a place where the kids could go and say, oh, yeah, this is the place of the books. Right. So I, I kind of knew the parent governor, Jason, and he got in touch with me and he said, look, we want a library, but we don't kind of know what that library will be. We have a very small budget, uh, but, but where they just determined that there will be a true library on our school. And because he knew that I, I've renovated properties for years and years and years and I've done all kinds of building work, he just got in touch with me. And so I said, well, what have you got to play with? And he said, we've got £25,000 because they very cleverly looked at how the budgets work. And because they're a big school, they get quite a large building maintenance budget. Right. And so they, they realised that, that that did not exclude them from building so as long as it was spent on buildings, then that's fine. Uh, so they had this little bit of spare bit of cash lying around. And I thought, wow, 25, what can you do for 25,000? So mm. I immediately thought, okay, it has to be a timber frame building. Right. And then I thought, what's the simplest form of timber frame building you can have? And that's an A-frame building. Right. So all the old tithe barns in, in the past and, and barns that they built in America early on were all these A-frame buildings. Yeah. Because what, what they are is, is that they're very simple structures to put up and they can be put up by unskilled labour. And I, so I thought to myself, okay, let's have like a barn raising because what will I have at my disposal? I'll have lots of keen parent volunteers that want this library for their, for their children, but, but maybe, not a, maybe not a skilled labour set. Right. And so I imagined like a barn raising. You think of think yourself in Midwest America when all, all the community comes together when a new family gets a house and they build a barn in a day. Yeah. And then they have a big party afterwards. And, it, and that's what these are. These are basically simple A-frame buildings. And that's what I had in my head for this library. So I started sketching A-frame buildings. And then I suddenly thought to myself, do you know what? That A-frame looks a bit like an open book. So I started sketching it in the shape of a book. And then I thought to myself, I'll find some examples on the internet. I'll, I'll, I'll search the web and see, let's, let's, look, let's find a, an open book building. Mm. And I searched and searched and searched, and no one, to my knowledge, has ever built wow. a book, a building that looks like an open book. Wow, yeah. So... So then I kind of then refined the idea uh, and I decided it was going to have pages either end. Uh, and, and the pages are made out of oak. There are 70 individual pages on each mm -hmm. end. 
that, with, that me and a, a friend of mine put on. Uh, and we we made them so that if, if you're dealing with wood and you're dealing with oak particularly, when it weathers, it will twist and it will warp and it will bend. Oh. But only with the only with the, with the way the grain goes. Yeah. So we built this book anyway, and and, and it, you know, and, and it, it's, I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. So we kind of put it together, and I couldn't quite do it for twenty five thousand, but I, I approached the mayor of Liverpool, uh, Jonas, and, and I showed him a picture, and he said, "I'll make up the shortfall." Because okay. he has a mayoral fund that they're allowed to do anything which they think uh, uh, contributes positively to the city. Right. So he threw in uh, a match fund. And, and in the end, we built the thing for about £37,000. And wow. if, if, if anyone wants to see it, just search Walton Primary School Library and it will pop up immediately. Well, I was, um, was going to say, we'll pull it, hopefully we'll put a picture on uh, with, the, with this podcast because it's such a brilliant looking building, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I just and the good thing about it, Steve, is what what a lot of people don't know is that uh, it just says Walton School Library, and on and on the back it just says Once Upon a Time, <laughs> uh, uh, and and that's all you can see. But if you fly a drone over it, it, it says that the title is called the Library, and the author is Simon O'Brien. So oh. it's the only, it's, it's, and no one ever sees that bit because you can't see the top of the building. So that's why you said my book. I want to talk about my yeah, book. Okay. Yeah, that's my, that, that's my bit of vanity on the whole thing. And also what a lot of people don't know as well is that my daughter, of course, was at the school at the time. And when it was actually finished the book, I took her in and I got the biggest kind of nibbed felt tip you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And, and I climbed up a ladder. And in the eaves that no one could ever see unless you lean back at a certain point, I just put two rows at Love Dad, because everyone signs a book to their kid. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So, 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 so that's in there, uh, and it's also dedicated to one of the guys who worked on the book. Uh, he, he passed away, and he was called Will, mm. uh, 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 and, and and so it's dedicated to. The, so when the kids arrive at school, and they want to know what the book is. The story is, is that Will of the Hazel, because his name is Collins, and Collins in Welsh means of of the hazel. Okay, right. And so, and so the kids are told when they arrive at the school that, uh, that 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 a giant walked past the school one day, and realizing that they didn't have a library, left a book that that, that we then turned into their, their library for, them. and that and that giant was called Will of the Hazel. Oh, I love it. There's a story then. There's a whole story in the book building, isn't there? The book, the book building is a story. There is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, and also, I, I, to finish, I finish off to finish off the narrative of that particular book. So I then sat one night uh, with, with my daughter, uh, who's just walking past, banging the door, quiet, please. <laughs> and we sat, and we opened our favourite books randomly. My wife and my daughter and I, and literally just opened a page and put our finger. At a sentence, and running around because you have to have because because the, the ends are glass, right. you have to have manifestation so people don't walk into them. That's the technical. Right. Point. So instead of having really boring just lines or, or whatever it was, we just picked lines out of random books that, that we liked, but not the lines everyone knows. Just literally a sentence, mm. and that's what we use for the manifestations all around the book. And 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 then and so the kids have to try and guess what book that was from. No one ever does it. Oh. They're just literally sentences from random books. Yeah. So there you go. So and that so that's the kind of the story of, of, of the book really. And and I have to say, the pictures online are I'm gonna have to put some more on because the pictures online when it was just it was just built and the oak is all brand new. 
But now, as I knew it would, the oak is all silvered. Right. And, and, and so the pages are now white, and they've done what we wanted them to do as well. They've all started to bend and fold outwards. Uh-oh. And so it's, it's, it's that, it now starts to look like a careworn book. It's been leafed, leafed a thousand times, basically. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. On to your books, the books you've chosen. Now, I was a bit, um, when I'd look, I I've, I've only read one of these books that you out to your list, and that was like 30 years ago. So you're going to have to do all the work on this, really, Simon. No, I'm going to give you 10 minutes to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a bit of that before, but it's... Uh... So anyway, we're going to start with maybe with Henry the Fourth, part one. Is that OK? Yeah, by, of course. By, yeah. by William yeah. Shakespeare. And, in, and Henry succeeds to the English throne after Richard II and has to contend with rebellion in the country and from a scandal of a son. And that's about all I know about it. OK. Why have you chosen this? When I was at school, you, know, you, you, you rely on an inspirational teacher, don't you? Yeah. Uh, one of those teachers for me was an English teacher. You know, I always loved books, and that was a fact. But when it came to the likes of Shakespeare and that kind of stuff, you know, the poetry of the language and the, and the archaic terms they use, to engage a teenager in that kind of stuff takes some doing. And I had a teacher, Mr. Bruns, who did it. Right. And not only did he do it, he chose the right play for certainly for the teenage lads in his class because Henry the Fourth Part One is, is it's a story of the coming of age, you know. It's a story of a of a, a wayward prince who literally has everything he, he needs, etc. etc. And he, he's spoiled and he has riches and uh, off he goes and, and of course does what anyone in that situation would do. Uh, goes drinking and whoring and basically behaving in a thoroughly bad manner. But also in, in a kind of a waggish way as well. You know, you, you get this feeling that, that this prince is, even, even though he's, he's going down the wrong track, right. he's got something good about him. And that, that, and that runs through the narrative. I mean, and, and his best mate is a, is a fat old sock called Falstaff. And, okay. And, and they go on their merry ways, causing mischief. You know, it, it permanently disappointing his father. And at the end of it, you know, and, and then and the end of the tale is, is that of course his father dies and Henry Henry the Fourth becomes king, uh, and, and Henry the Fourth suddenly flips right. and, and immediately drops Falstaff, his old friend, and takes up the responsibility that he was born to have. And so it's that really strange story, and you're left with this dilemma: of, is he a terrible fella for leaving these drunken kind of crazy friends behind? Or is he a good fella for basically doing the right thing and picking up responsibility when it was thrust upon him? Yeah. And for me, and, and sadly, it, it, it's actually quite sad for me that to, to read that play now because I, I never wanted to be an actor, and it just it just kind of came upon me by chance. It was a day, when I got Brookside. It was just a day off school. Mm. The audition was an excuse to miss double maths. Uh, but there I was suddenly in this in this world of acting and presenting and that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, if there was a role I want to play, it's Prince Hal <laughs> from Henry the Fourth, Part One. Right. Uh, sadly, when I got to about the age of forty, I realised I'd never play that part. Oh, it's classic. It's classic, Simon, for actors, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But but I never got to play that part. And you get to a certain age when you go, no matter how much makeup you've got on you will never be <laughs> Prince Hal. 
I might be Falstaff. Yeah. <laughs> but they're doing age-blind stuff now, aren't they? They're doing age-blind casting and, and things like that, so you never know. Good grief, it has to be particularly age-blind. <laughs> I've, I've got more chance of getting the role of Falstaff now, <laughs> I promise you. I'm sitting here with a glass of red wine yes, than I am a Prince Hal. So, so this teacher uh, and that particular play just completely engaged me with the whole world of Shakespeare, you know, and made you realise that these were... These were tales pertinent to any time, right. once you could see through the language. Did you get into other Shakespeare? Did you read more Shakespeare? Absolutely. That was the one. Exactly that. Yeah. You know, I've read every single Shakespeare play there is now. You know, I, I, I did. I've done Shakespeare. I've done Shakespeare's monologues and all sorts of things since. Right. But that, but that was the one play because it just because it just it just hummed with like anyone who wanted to listen of a certain age, particularly the lads of a certain age, naughty lads of a certain age. Yeah. There's this terrible lad doing what he wants because he because he can, and then suddenly turns his back on all that and and, and grows up. That, that's really interesting because Shakespeare is is a difficult thing for teenagers to get into because the language feels archaic, or you can just dip in and out and get the phrases, can't you? You know the brilliant phrases yeah. that are part of the language. And there is, I never quite got away into Shakespeare. Um, my English teacher was good, but he was more into the kitchen sink dramas you know that kind of thing yeah, yeah. is what we got into so i was quite happy with that and i never quite got into shakespeare I, i've stolen lots of lines from shakespeare <laughs> over the time <laughs> but that, that's re a really interesting way in next book i've got down is uh, 100 years of solitude by gabriel garcia marquez yeah. And uh, this book is regarded as one of the greatest novels of all time, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's almost like a, a family saga or a soap opera, isn't it? But like kind of with strange ghosts and dreams and family yeah. history and metaphors for Latin America and such like. And so, yeah. tell us, please, about Hundred Years of Solitude. It's exactly that, you know. Hundred Years of Solitude is just just the most beautifully written book because because it, it it takes you to that kind of. Oh, that kind of central South American time when the whole the whole place is run by kind of tin pot dictators and people with power and the Catholic Church right. and the ordinary people have to deal with that whilst dealing with like malaria and typhoid and and it's just a story. It's just a, it's just a very elegantly written story of generations and generations of, of one particular family. But it, it does it so beautifully. It, to me, Garcia writes in poetry, right. uh, and and and, when, and he paints a picture of where you are. Within a moment, you are sitting on a veranda, uh, and you are you are sweating because of the oppressive <laughs> humidity and the heat, and at the same time, you are wondering where that person has gone and what's happening, and you get completely engaged with the characters. And, and that's and that's I simply chose it for that because it's a really it's one of those really big books as well. It's a thick book, yeah. And you start reading it and you think, "Wow, am I going to get through this?" And by the time you finish it, you go, "I wish it was twice as thick." Wow. And you know, and, and you, as you mentioned before, you know, I, I've kind of been lucky enough in my time to get paid to travel and, and, and film all over the world. And, and you go to you end up in really small places in the middle of a rainforest, and you're sitting there, and you and these people and the hopes and aspirations at that at that time. The whole point about hundred years of solitude is that 
the hopes and aspirations of this town is that it's this is it. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. We are on the verge of becoming this glorious city. And you can just feel the rainforest want to take it back and, and as the hopes and aspirations like fail and, and, and just the whole oppression of being in the middle of, of nature that doesn't really want you there. And, mm. and, and so it, to me, it, it brings back times, it brings back great memories. And my, my wife and I, once upon a time, insanely rode our bikes over the Andes. And we ended up in places that just reminded me of a hundred years of solitude, you know, and, and one night, once we got to the top of the Andes, we got to about 13 and a half thousand feet, at which point my wife said to me, which only, I, 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 it's the best quote I've ever heard of anyone. We'd, we'd ridden uphill for five days, Ooh. fully loaded on our touring bikes, wow. and all our panniers and all that kind of stuff. It got to a point where the altitude was so high that we, if you rode 100 yards, you had to rest for 20 minutes because you felt like you'd ridden for 10 miles. Right. Uh, but, you know, not in pain, but just it's really kind of, just to have to take your time. And when we got to the very top, got to the pass at the top of, uh, 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 the highest point, she said, is that it? Is, <laughs> is that it? <laughs> she later explained what she meant was, I thought the view would be better because it was a bit cloudy. Right. But, 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 but I, I, I can't think of anyone else I would be with who, who would have gone through that and got, is that it? Literally keeping your feet on the ground. Exactly. So... And then we rode, but the point of this story is we rode down there and we didn't, we didn't, we didn't kind of, we didn't touch our pedals for a day because yeah. that's how high we were. We literally went, we rode for nine hours without turning our pedals because we it was all just on the brakes. And we ended up a little bit short of where we needed to be as it went dark. And we had lights. Mm. But uh, again, Elizabeth, my wife, she turned around to me at that point and as we weren't sure how far it was to the place where we were supposed to be staying. And she turned around and she says, Simon, I've told you, I don't like rainforests in the dark. <laughs> and, I, and I promise you, Steve, my wife had never told me she didn't like rainforests in the dark. You should have I, known. I should have known. But we got to where but it was that point, you know, you know you're, you're in those places, if anyone's ever looking at me there, you're suddenly surrounded by, and you've got all the noises. Oh, I can imagine. And, You've got, and, and that is what 100 Years of Solitude is about. It's, it's about that feeling that we're about to conquer the world, except what is it nature will not allow us to do, right. and neither will human nature. Right. And the point about Garcia is the beauty, the reason it's one of the best books in the world, and why he's, he, he's one of the best writers in the world, is his ability to just put a picture in your head in poetry is just unbelievable. It's, it's a book I've not read and it's a book I've intended to read. But every, seriously, every time it comes in to, to George Street, it goes out the next day. Somebody buys it the next day, you know. It's, so every time we get a copy, second-hand copy, yeah. the next day it goes. And I've, over the years, I've gone, I should read that. It's big. Mm. I'll hang on. But that sounds... It, it, you have, you've now decided me that I'm, I'm going to... Gonna, next time it comes in, it's going in my bag as soon as... Yeah, I, he, I will pay for it. He just is such a beautiful writer. In the Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Okay, on to your next book. And uh, that is This Is Not My Hat by John Classen. And it's um, an illustrated children's story about a small fish who steals a hat from a big fish and the big fish gets it back. There's more to it than that. Well, there are three books I, I, I kind of read my daughter when she was very small. Right. One is a fairly obvious one, 
uh, it's, it's The Snail and the Whale by Julia Donaldson. Okay. And uh, it, it just runs so beautifully, yeah. uh, and it's, it, it's it's all the right messages, etc., etc. Mm. Uh, big gets on the small, etc., etc. So it's got, it's got the, the right moment. And the other one, uh, the one I, I, re- I, wa- I wasn't quite sure I was going to pick this one, or, or this is not my hat. The other one is uh, the, the, the Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig, right? which obviously flips the whole story on its head. Yeah. And all, I, all I'll say is that at the point that I was reading the page where it says, so the pig went away and got himself some Semtex and some plexiglass. <laughs> you know that you're onto a good book for your kid. <laughs> because because my child is already asleep and I'm laughing my head <laughs> yeah. off reading this book. You know. Yeah. But I have to say, it was just topped by This Is Not My Hat because This Is Not My Hat not only is the, is the most morally corrupt children's story <laughs> ever. So it's a simple story. It's a simple story of someone stealing. And he steals from someone who's bigger than him. Yeah. And he thinks he's got away with it. And he thinks that no one's going to snitch on him <laughs> because they're all his mates. But of course, they do all snitch on him. Yeah. And in the end, the, the, the last image, the, the, the image which is your, your child looks at you and you look at them and they look at you. The image is, is that, I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for anyone, but read it, anyway. read it to your kids and watch them try and work out the morals of this book. The, the, the little fish swims into some seaweed and he's followed by the big fish. And the next scene, the next picture is the big fish swimming out with his hat back on. <laughs> now, what went on in that seaweed <laughs> is never told. Right. Uh, I, I talked to me. I told my daughter I was going to mention this uh, as we were talk, talking tonight. Um, I said, "So what went on in the seaweed?" And he says, and she said, "Well, the big fish ate the little fish and got his hat back." I said, "But do you know that?" She said, "No, I don't know that. Mm. Maybe he swam away and dropped the hat." I said, "And that's the whole point. The whole point is, and all the way, and, and you know, there's a, there's a there's a crab who's supposed to be the little fish's bait who immediately snitches on, right? You know, you know, and as we say over here, snitches get stitches. Oh. But you know, you don't grasp, never grasp. But so it's all of those. So so the whole thing. So there's an ambiguity to the morals, isn't there? You oh, know? the whole thing. The whole thing is based. It's, it's a lovely children's story based on a thief that you that you you side with, yeah. and then and then and then feel bad. When people rightfully tell the owner of the hat where it's where gone. it is, you know, and, yeah. and if you're gonna if you're gonna steal, don't get caught. Is... Yeah, if you correct, yeah. and also if you're gonna steal, don't steal from someone who's a lot bigger than you. <laughs> but it's the beauty. But but the beauty of it is, you know, the reason it's it's been so lauded. I picked it up in a bookshop. And I was just like, oh, what's this? And I read it front to cover in the bookshop. Yeah, uh, because it just got me. Yeah, and I went, oh, I know which book I'm. Yeah. And that is the so. Whenever a friend of mine had had a kid, ever since, or or, or we're now getting to the age where I have grandkids, yeah. there's only one book I will buy for. Them. Is that one? And, and that will be this is not my hat, but it's just a, a lovely thing. It's it's great. It's great finding a good book that you and your kid both love, though, isn't it? You know that you can sit it there is. and it and it will take rereading and rereading. It is. You know, and do you know, I nearly picked. I, I did nearly pick as as. as it, it, I wasn't sure between the, the, possibly the one of the next books we're going to talk about, or, right. or and, and the Hobbit. Right. Now the Hobbit—it's a really obvious choice. I kind of didn't go for it, but you know what? 
I sat with my daughter when she was three years old. Okay. And I read uh, The Hobbit. Now, yeah. a lot of it was, you would think would be inappropriate. Yeah. And I wasn't sure what, the lang- what language she was picking up and what she wasn't picking up. But she stayed engaged through the whole thing. Um, and we read it for, it took us about two weeks to read The Hobbit. Uh, of course, as soon as she fell asleep, I'd be out of it. <laughs> but, but, and it took us about two weeks to read it. And then about five years later, I allowed her to go underage, to go on your tiptoes, to go and watch the film, The Hobbit. Okay. And halfway through the, the film, she went, that didn't happen. Ah. And I was like, what? She says, that's not right. No, what happened then was, and when, so from when she was three or four years old, it went in. that story had been imprinted. We never discussed it since. And when we went to, went to, when we went to watch the film, she critiqued Peter Jackson, <laughs> which I think is fair enough to do. Uh, and she critiqued him because we said, no, that's not right. That didn't happen there. No, they, that should have happened there. And I was mm-hmm. amazed. So anyone who wonders whether you can read a complex story to a small mind and think they're going to get, stay with it, well, that was the answer for me. And so I nearly picked The Hobbit, but it just got topped by, by this is not my life. Your next choice of Mice and Men, John Steinbeck, and it's it's a classic yeah. depression era tale of unemployed migrant workers in California, and it's a gritty piece of Americana, isn't it? And, yeah. You know. So tell us tell us about about this one. Oh well, it's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> there, there, there's one reason to read of Mice and Men to make yourself feel better about your life, because mm. everyone thinks you know looks over at America now. And, they all think that, you know, that there's a nation that was born fat. Uh, and in actual fact, it was a nation that was born of very dubious circumstances yeah. from years ago. But, you know, for, the, for the, last, the last century and a half, people have been through incredible hardships there that we, we kind of don't see. Mm. And do you know what? Of mice and men, and also uh, the grapes of wrath as well, I think, I, I think equally suit the whole thing. It's just... What Steinbeck does is he makes you realise that there is a true lower working class in America that we, we don't often see and has always been there. And, and that's why I was kind of torn between which one. I might be changing my mind now because grapes, the Grapes of Wrath is just so unbelievable. Mm. But, but basically, but the reason I chose either of those Steinbeck books is just because he wrote with such power and such empathy with people who were really at the wrong end of things and were struggling to make their way in what was called the land of opportunity, you know. And, and, and that's all I can say, really. I, I could have picked either of those books, but Steinbeck is such a powerful, powerful writer. There's a reason that he's, he's lauded. There's a, there's a reason he's seen as one of the most amazing American writers. When I, I lived out in America for, kind of, for, for three years out in California and L.A., uh, and everyone thinks that Americans can be incredibly superficial. It's what's next. It's what's in the next moment. What we're going to do now, uh, and nothing else really matters. And, and it's all about me. How am I going to get on? What am I going to do? And in actual fact, if you think of that culture, which is so kind of self-centered, then when you get someone like John Steinbeck born from it, with the observations that they can make. Well, I think that makes him an even greater writer than someone from a culture that was more sympathetic. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, so you know, there's a few Americas, aren't there? Really, there's yeah. you know the America that they say the land of opportunity, the American dream, and all the rest of it. Um, but in in this book, he, he, there's ra- racism. Yep. There's uh, uh, people learning disabilities, and yep. there's euthanasia. Yeah. And uh, you know, and it's still on. It, it came it came off the syllabus for a while, didn't it? Because yeah. people yeah. worried about the language he expressed these things, and but the language was true to what they you know how they were experiencing their lives. You know. Of course. Yeah. And nothing's changed. Yeah. That's, that's the sadness of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not fair. Think, things have definitely changed. You know, you, you, you'll never get. You know, hopefully, hopefully, we'll never see that, that that kind of fractious society. But but we're not far off, you know. And the whole Black Lives Matter thing and all that kind of stuff. It reminded me. Um, Steinbeck. There he was, not long time before, seeing and predicting all this stuff and observing it then. Yeah. My first week in working in LA in 1991, the Rodney King verdict came out. Oh right, uh, of course. Yeah. And, and then and so the good folks set LA ablaze, and, and we were told to go home and curfew and this kind of stuff. Roll forward 30 years, and depressingly, uh, the state troopers are back out on the street after the, the George Floyd incident, and and it was really I found it really poignant actually that so little has changed in those 30 years. To, to show you how to show you how a dream, the American dream, can go badly wrong, mm. you know, and, and how when it does go badly wrong, you are really, really on your own to, yeah. to, to try and sort it out. You that, don't, you don't want to wake up, do you? No, yeah. you don't, and and that's the point, and and and, and that's kind of the point. So that, I had to pick Steinbeck because because every book of but either of those books, of Mighty Men or Grapes of Wrath, just moved me to tears, basically. In the bookshop. The George Street Community Bookshop Podcast for book lovers everywhere. So, for your next book, Simon, To Do No Song by Adafi Atagun. It was published in 2016 and I've seen it described as a dystopian book. It's set in Nigeria. Uh, it seems to explore lots of ideas around the theme of freedom. Yeah. So, but you know what it's like. You're always reading books that someone recommends and that kind of stuff, etc., etc., etc. And you pick them up and you like them and you go, oh, yeah, that, that, that kind of engaged me. And every now and again, you get one that like you, you just go, man, that's just a really good book. Right. So, I don't, I don't know what it is. There's just something that catches you about a, a, a book that you've never heard of. We've all done it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and this was the one for me. It's basically a story of, of a guy. He's a musician. He's at the he's at the top, and then there's a revolution. There's something massive upheaval in his country. He goes into exile, and when he comes back, not only does not any anyone not know him, but no one knows his music. Now, Steve, now you're a musician. <laughs> no one knows my music anymore. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, but you, can you imagine? Mad. Mm. If you suddenly went away for the weekend. And then you came back and your wife and your friends and all that kind of stuff, you started to play and he said, oh, that's that, what's that tune? Right. Because it's gone. It's been erased. So not only have you been erased, but your creative talent has also been erased. Uh, to me, that's an utter affront. Right. For example, you know, Elvis is dead, but Elvis lives on. Yes. Because... He is immortal because everyone knows his music. But what if when Elvis died, 
is the music was all erased as well. And if Elvis knew that was going to happen, for any artist of any description, if you're a painter, sculptor, an actor or anything, if, if you, the thought that, I don't, how can I put this? I think that many creative talents, many, anyone who, who works in the arts, is kind of searching for immortality in some way or other. Right. If that makes any sense. And, 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 and so this guy has not only lost himself, but no one knows his music as well. Right. It's a story of, it's, it's a, the, the, the whole kind of struggle on the continent of Africa or anywhere else in the world where a society suddenly collapses because of a, an evil force within it, a dictatorial force within it. And then this one person is then dealt with the opportunity that we can reintroduce you only if you're on our side. Otherwise, no one will ever know you ever again. Wow. And that's and that's the dilemma. Yeah, but it's just a, a really beautiful prose on that dilemma of, of what where do you compromise for your own ego over what what is doing right and what is right for the society as well. Yeah, correct, correct. I've seen it described as kind of Kafkaesque, so you know you're caught whichever way you look. You know exactly, exactly, exactly that. And it's so he has he has confidants. He has people who kind of know the truth, but oh, don't, don't, they kind of believe, other people kind of believe him, but don't believe him. And behind it all is the power of the state who's trying to hunt him out and witch him out and all that kind of stuff. And it, uh, all of us have, have wanted to write a book, you know. And, and, yeah. and my word, if you could write that as your first book, you'd raise a glass to yourself because the author just has a, an innate ability which is immediate. You know, and I don't know how long they've been trying to create their first novel, but if that's your first novel to create this dystopian world and to ask all those questions in a really short novel, then I'm utterly jealous of their talent. But also, that's why I chose it. I chose it because that's my little book that I think that just got me right, and I know that everyone has that book, and you can hand it to your next, you can hand it to your friend, right? And they go, and they and they might go, eh. It's strange, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and, and the, so uh, uh, otherwise, you know, all, all we'd ever do is sit around reading classics, isn't it? You know, oh, yeah, of course, yes, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But everyone has a little paperback that they picked up and went, damn, that is exactly, I love that. I, that. That drew me in. I absolutely love that book, and that's why I chose that particular book to go with the rest. I'm a sucker for dystopian novels, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm de- this is definitely on the list. I've never heard of I've heard of all the other books and most of the podcasts we've done I've usually heard of the books I've not heard of this one or the author and that's the point isn't it you know so yeah. so uh, you know so to do no song Doffy Atogan so if anyone if three people now listen to your stuff and, and read that book one of them might go yeah man that's cool yeah the other two might go what's he talking about right but that but isn't that the point yes. of the variety of books that are available to us? That's, that was why it was so important that I put that on the list. So now we're on to your final book, The Weird Stone of Brisbane Gaming. Yeah. Have I pronounced that correctly? Uh, no, not quite. Go on then. The Weird Stone of Brisbane Gammon. Brisbane Gammon. Okay. It's a tale of Alderley, Alderley Edge. And it's a children's novel by Alan Garner, a fantasy novel. 
Um, with kids having extraordinary adventures in the landscape around Macclesfield and Alderley Edge. And I saw, I watched um, Books Are Made Britain about two weeks ago and you were presenting one on books in Northwest and you, you chose this book and you spoke with Alan Garner and it was really, it was brilliant. So, so I, I really enjoyed it and I love the way that you can make uh, the landscape around you come alive with wizards and yeah. monsters and folklore. But you tell me why you love it. Well, that, I, I, that's the. I, I have to tell you, that, that, uh, I might only, I might only be D-list, but you know what? I've been around long enough to meet <laughs> to meet some pretty big heads. Yeah. And um, and I have to tell you, I'm not nervous about meeting many people, but when I was meeting Alan Garner, I was in awe. Right. Because it, when I when I was like 12 years old, if I wanted to disappear from our house, from the world, from everywhere. It would be in Alan Garner's books. Right. And, and I, got, I got a signed copy for my daughter uh, of the Weirdstone of Brisangon because what he did was, is it, so, okay, let, let's put it in context. So Harry Potter, yeah, the whole Harry Potter stuff, yeah. and the Hobbit and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of escape is uh, kind of magical worlds that you can create. But Alan Garner did a trick because what Alan Garner did was he created magic in places that existed. Yes. So when I started reading Alan Garner's stuff, I'd go, oh, Marcus, I've heard of Marcus. If I could find it on the map. Mm. And, 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 I, and, and then, and, and, you know, six months later, I'm pestering my parents to go to Aldi Ledge. Why don't we go to Aldi Ledge? Why don't we go to the seaside? I want to go to Aldi Ledge. I want to go to Aldi Ledge. <laughs> uh, I, I, because to create... For, for, for that mind of that age, of a certain age when you're a kid, to mix up your diminishing belief in the, tr the truth of magic right. with the reality of the everyday world is a trick that kind of prolongs that belief that the world exists on several different planes. And that's what Garner did, basically. And, and he did it in such a fantastic way. Ordinary characters, but, but what Garner does is, is just says like, yeah, so, so went for a walk, got a bit lost, suddenly yeah, underground, there's trolls and all this kind of stuff, but it's a place that actually exists. Yeah, it's an act of great imagination, isn't it? Oh, it, and as he, as he explained to me when I met him, you know, is that this place was where he hung around because he was a lonely, sickly child. And just spent his whole life up on all to the edge and that kind of stuff, uh, uh, just hanging around on his own. And when he came back, when he came to write years later, what did he have to draw on? His childhood imagination of, of, of all the things he created in this in, on this woods and and in, and, and in fairness, you know, that, that all to the edge is, is a, the, up there. Some of the views and that kind of stuff yes. it is quite it's quite a spooky kind of ethereal place. Mm. And he just drew on that. And so so he just, he was the first person, the first author that really, really blew my mind that you can create magic from the ordinary. So you, you, you like it because the unreal is in the middle of the real kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I read, I think, well, what was his name? Oh, oh, Clive Barker wrote a book Oh, called yeah, yeah. Weave World. Mm, Weave World's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a Weave World was set in Liverpool, and he starts to talk about the journey to my local train station, and that really freaked me out. Yeah. Because it's all horrible, really dark sorcery and magic and terribleness. 
but it's just hang it's just round the corner. Yeah. And he's describing where I live. I, I, I said, Ghana, even though I wasn't quite from the fact that I could find this place, and this place was real, I actually went to this place, yeah. was just amazing. Did it strike you that he was still uh, there was still the chat he'd managed to keep hold of the child in him? Oh, so it, the, the guy was amazing, you know, because yeah. you could see the the light was still on in his eye. You okay, know. yeah. I, I, if, I, if I was Alan Garner, I'd be incredibly bitter because, you know, because, because if, if Alan Garner had been now, you know, then he would be the J.K. Rowling. He would be the, the J.R.R. Tolkien. It, it, it's, it's right, I think his right is comparable with them, and he kind of never quite got the recognition. Right. But I mean, he wasn't. He was not bitter at all. He's had a good life out of it. He, he, he lives where he wants to live, and, and, and even just even weirder, which is just fantastic, because he, he lives in a, a beautiful old medieval kind of what would I call it a long barn. Okay, and just out the back of it, you're looking at Jodrell Bank, uh-huh. which is just the freakiest. That's thing. the spookiest place you can go, Jodrell Bank. I yeah. think. I think yeah, it's yeah. you drive past it and it goes quiet. And it's just like, this is all. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so the view from his house is Jodrell Bank. He's right. a man who writes about trolls and wizards <laughs> and magic and all this kind of stuff. And, it, and his view is of, 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 the, the, you know, of the, the magic of what's up there. So the weird stone of, say it again. Brisangaman. Brisangam. Brisangaman. Brisangaman. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Steve, I'll let you off because I said it completely wrong until I met Alan Garner. Ah, did you say it wrong to him? Yeah, I always call it. I always call it the weird story of a prison gammon. Right, and, and he said, "What oh, you mean the weird story of prison gammon?" Oh, yeah, of course, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> so now you're waiting for it to come up in conversation so you can say it prop. And this is why you've done this, isn't it? Just, just, just get you to say it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So there we go. So that's um, Simon O'Brien. So I hope you've enjoyed this. I've really in- enjoyed it. Thank you, Simon, for for talking to us. Yeah, ple- absolute pleasure, Steve. Keep reading, everyone. So you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for George Street Community Bookshop and follow us for the latest updates to find out more about who we are and what we do. Have a look at our website, georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk, where you can now also buy books from us online. And of course, now that we're starting to open again, you can always come and visit us at the shop on George Street in Glossop, and we hope you can join us next time in the bookshop. In the bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere.